I think there are many of us in this room. Maybe you've gone to church for a long time. Maybe you've been in church for years, but you've had an only child kind of relationship with God the Father, with your Heavenly Father, right? It's easier for us to understand a, a perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father than it is to understand and live out an imperfect, uh, a relationship with imperfect brothers and sisters. And so my hope and my heart for you in this series is that God is revealing that not only are we not only children in this spiritual family, but it's actually better for us this way. Like, if we don't live out with brothers and sisters in the faith, that we're actually missing out on something that God has for us, a picture of who God is. And so as we sail the seas of family together, we've been using Ephesians 2 um, kind of as our, our north star. And so today I'm going to read uh, Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 20. Um, but this morning we're actually going to drill down into verse 19. And I'm going to be teaching this morning from the New Living Translation, and we'll, we'll put it on the screen. The title of the sermon today is Kingdom Family Belonging. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it only affected their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in His own body, on the cross, He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in Himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of His death on a cross. And our hostility toward each other has been put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and he brought peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. And here's our verse this morning. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of of God's family. Together, we are His house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus Himself. Church, this is God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, it is foolishness that I would be standing up here communicating the truth the precepts, the weights, the measures of all that you are. Lord, I confess this morning that I am vastly underqualified, unqualified even. But Lord, I do know that you have a history. You have a track record of taking unqualified, underqualified human beings and speaking through them in a way that proves your undeniable glory on this earth, Lord. And so, Father, I want to ask right now that you would speak to all of us 
that you would give us a glimpse this morning into your heart for your church, for your family, for your people. Thank you, Lord. We ask everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been reading the Bible and gotten stumped by those really long lists of family lineages, right? Reu begat Sarug, and Sarug begat Nahor, and Nahor begat Terah, and on and on and on. There's entire chapters in the Bible that are devoted to just lists of names and lineages. And you're like, why? Like, why is this even in the Bible? Like, this is God's Word. This is like the eternal Word of God. Why is this list in here? I don't get it. The reason is because God cares deeply about family. God himself is a familial God. That's why the best language that we have to describe who God is is father, son. That's how we describe the relationships that exist within God himself. And since the very beginning, family has been the primary vehicle by which God has expressed himself in the earth. We see in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. God institutes and orchestrates family to be his reflection upon the earth. And then, in the very next verse, God gives them a command. We'll call it a family plan. He says this, he says, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. And that's a really important commandment. And there are two imperatives within that commandment that I want to point out. Two Hebrew words that I want to look at. So the first one is this word called para, which means uh, to be fruitful or to bear fruit. And the second word is this word rabah, which means to increase. And it's not just talking about increasing in number. It's not just talking about making babies, okay? That's not necessarily all of what be fruitful and multiply means. It's certainly a part of it. But Rabbah also means to become great or to excel. So God is setting in motion his plan for human beings to reflect his greatness, his excellence through family. <clears throat> family is the means by which God is going to write his story on the earth. But if we read much further than Genesis, we see that the family cause soon turns into a family crisis. Sin enters into the world, and what sin does is it starts to erode the, the familial image of God in humanity. And in just a few chapters, we see a jealous Cain murder his brother Abel in cold blood. And so family begins to dissolve and deteriorate in the world. And this breakdown of family ultimately leads God to a point of no return. In Genesis chapter 6, it says in verse 2, The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. Sin has corrupted family so greatly that God has no choice but to pour out his judgment upon the earth. But just when all seemed lost, when all seemed hopeless, God chooses, he makes a choice to save the human race through a family. God finds favor with a man named Noah, 
Genesis says that Noah was the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And we all know the story, right? Noah builds a boat, he builds an arky arky, and God sends the floody floody, and all life is wiped out on earth except for Noah's family. And it's really important to notice what happens after the waters recede. God establishes a new covenant with Noah and his family. It says in Genesis 9, Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Do you see the pattern of family that's starting to form in the narrative that God is telling? Do you see his kingdom advancing through family? But sadly, the family forgets the plan again in Genesis 11. Instead of using their unity, using their togetherness to reflect the glory of God, the people use it to glorify themselves by building a massive tower in the middle of Babylonia. So God scatters them into different regions and languages, effectively creating what we know today as the nations. And at this point, you might think, okay, God is done with this whole family thing. Like, he tried it, it didn't work. He tried it again, it didn't work. He's done. But God is not done with family yet. In fact, he's just getting started. God establishes a new covenant with a man named Abraham. A covenant to bless the nations through his family. And Genesis 12 says, I will make you, Abraham, and your family, I will make you into a great nation, and all the families on earth will be blessed through you. And it's here in this moment that God births an entire nation out of a family. And God makes it clear that the role of this family, this nation, is to bless. God says, I am blessing you so that you can be a blessing to the world. This family is to be an instrument of salvation to the nations. This family is to be fruitful in the world. God gives this family a name in Genesis chapter 35. He's speaking uh, to to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. He says, Now that Jacob had returned from Padan and Aram, God appeared to him again at Bethel. God blessed him, saying, Your name is Jacob, but you will not be called Jacob any longer. From now on, your name will be Israel. So God renamed him Israel. Check this out. Then God said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. What? Be fruitful and multiply. You will become a great nation, even many nations. And so begins the nation of Israel, a family of tribes and households that would be a beacon of light to all nations. When King Solomon, uh, when he dedicated the temple, once he had built, he built this amazing temple for the presence of God, and he prays for it, and he says, Lord, people are going to hear about your name. People are going to hear about who you are. People that are not in the family of Israel, they're going to hear about you. And when they do, when they turn, and when they pray toward this temple, would you bless them and grant their request? That's what Abraham prays for the temple. You see that idea of Israel, of God's people, of God's family, being a blessing to all the nations, to all of the earth. Israel was to be a shining example of the promises of God to all nations. 
But again, as one generation gave way to the next, Israel once again forgets the family plan. And the beam of light that was meant to shine outward into the nations began to turn inward. The familial bloodlines that were meant to reach out to bless the nations became the boundary lines that kept the nations out. A family that was called to be hospitable became hostile. A nation that was called to bless became bitter. A people, people that were called to be a beacon became a bunker. And this led to what Paul would describe as, in our text, as a wall of hostility that separated those who were in the family, the Jews, and those who were not, we call the Gentiles. And nowhere in this divide, nowhere was this divide more present than in the temple. And Dom talked about this last week a little bit. There were literal walls in the temple that separated Jews and Gentiles. <clears throat> and the Gentiles were only allowed in the outermost part of the temple, a 750 square foot area that was known as the Great Court of the Gentiles. This was the place where the oxen and the sheep and the livestock would be herded in so that they could be sacrificed as offerings to the Lord. And it was here that the money changers set up shop and made their noise. There was even a warning sign that was posted, warning that if you were a Gentile and you passed this area known as the balustrade, that you would be responsible for your own death, which would follow. If Reality Ventura was the temple, the Gentiles would be relegated to the parking lot. They'd be out by mom and pop's tacos. Like, they couldn't even get into the foyer, let alone the sanctuary, let alone the presence of God. If you were a Gentile, that is as close as you could get to God's presence. Simply put, Gentiles were tolerated, but they did not belong. And it's in the midst of this divided cultural and spiritual landscape that God is about to do his greatest work of family. Look at what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 11. It says, Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. Notice the use of family. And that word right there, bearing fruit, that's the same word that we see in the phrase, be fruitful and multiply. The same exact language. Later on in verse 10 it would say, and this is really trippy, Isaiah 11.10 says, In that day the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people, those who remain in Assyria and in northern Egypt and in southern Egypt, Ethiopia and Elam and Babylonia and Hamath and all the distant coastlands like Ventura and Oxnard and Camarillo and Ojai and Santa Paula. God sends his son to gather together a new family, a family that will reflect the glory of God the way it was intended to from the beginning, a family that will be a banner of salvation to all the earth. And he calls this family the church. But not only does Jesus gather a new family, he turns family on its head. Look at what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 12. It says, As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Somebody told Jesus, Your mother and brothers are standing outside. They want to speak to you. Jesus asked, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? 
And then he pointed to his disciples, and he said, look, these are my mothers and my brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus would echo the same idea in Luke 14. He might even be taking a step further here. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus dissing family? Is he condemning family in this statement? No. Jesus loved his family, right? We see the picture of this when Jesus is on the cross, and John and Mary are there, and he says, John, here is your mother. Like, Jesus cared very deeply about his earthly family. So he's not dissing family. What Jesus is doing here is redefining family. Remember, at this point, the bloodlines of God's people have become a barrier of exclusion. And what Jesus is saying here is there's a better blood running through your veins. A blood that cannot be controlled or corralled or contained or isolated or reserved for the chosen few. This bloodline is for all of humanity. Jesus is not just gathering people together. He is restoring God's people back to the heart of family. In Matthew 5, Jesus would tell the people, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Here's what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, my people, my family, your light was meant to shine into all of the earth. Don't put walls around it. Don't try to contain it. That's not your destiny. He's reminding them of the family plan. But before a new family could be built up, Jesus had to first tear some things down. Through his death on the cross, Jesus destroys what Paul would call the wall of hostility that separated peoples. And in doing so, he creates a new group of people unto himself. But Jesus does more than tear down the wall that separated one man from another. On the cross, Jesus tears the veil that separated mankind from a holy God. And so this new kingdom family is granted full, unfettered, unashamed, unafraid, unprecedented access to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul, that's why Paul would say, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. The same Holy Spirit, what does that mean? What does that mean in this church? The same Holy Spirit. Like there's no, I tithe 20% of my income spirit. There's no, I've been a Christian for 30 years spirit, right? It's the same Holy Spirit. And it's the results of all of this. The result of all of this is what Paul declares in verse 19 of our text. He says, so now, which is conclusionary language. So he's saying, therefore, because of Christ's finished work, you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with God's holy people. And the word that that Paul uses here for citizen is this word sympolites. Sim means identical. It's where we get the word symmetry. And polites means citizens, which literally means that what Paul is saying is you are identical citizens. There is no distinction in the family of God anymore. Now, just imagine for a second that you're a first century Jew in the church. 
You've been raised and conditioned from your childhood to think of Gentiles as the unclean, unholy other people, right? You've probably even walked past the Gentiles on your way to the inner courts of the temple, right? They're standing there over in the great court of the Gentiles. You're going into the, into the, into the inner courts, and you're like, ha, 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 I can go in, you can't. You would have never even entertained the notion that a Gentile could be a part of the family of God. And here is Paul, the Jew of Jews, taking a wrecking ball to the establishment, radically declaring that Gentiles are now included as equal, identical citizens of the kingdom of God. This would have been earth-shattering to a first-century Jew. This would have been unthinkable. This would have been madness to a Jew in the first century church. But Paul takes things even further than that. He's talking about something much deeper than citizenship. Because citizenship is just the foundation, right? A citizen is only required to exist alongside their fellow citizens. Citizens don't necessarily have to interact with one another. In my neighborhood, I have no obligation to speak to or even smile at the people who live around me. I mean, I I try to. I try to do that, right? But I don't have an obligation as a citizen. It's not part of my job description as a citizen. My job as a citizen is to do three things. Don't kill anyone, don't steal anything, and pay my taxes. That's your requirement as a citizen. But Paul is calling Jew and Gentile into something much greater than just citizenship, much greater than just shared existence. God is calling the church into deep, intimate, family relationship. The Greek word that Paul uses to describe family is this word oikios. The definition is to belong to a family, to be related by blood, to be kindred. There is an intimacy to the word oikios that provokes uh, the imagery of, of a family home. And often a lot of translations will translate that word into household. And it's in this new family, this new household of Jew and Gentile, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, they're the ones who are going to carry out the plan that God set in motion from the start. This family is a living, breathing, undeniable testament to the lavish grace that God has poured out upon all people. A grace that brings even the most bitter rivals to the Father's table. I want you to just look around the room for a second. Just take a peek. Somewhere in this room is your natural-born enemy. Somewhere in this room who, somewhere in this room is somebody who looks differently from you. Somebody who talks differently from you. Somebody who votes differently than you vote. Somebody who likes the things that you hate. And somebody who hates the things that you like. Like, you might love Starbucks. Like, you're a Starbucks person through and through. Starbucks is your jam. Like, if you don't get to church with your Starbucks, it's going to be a bad day for you and everybody that's sitting around you. Right? There's some of those people in this room. I know. And then there's people like me who think that Starbucks embodies everything that is wrong with the world. And we're under the same roof together. Full confession, though, if I'm desperate, I will drink Starbucks. I have no shame in admitting that. There are people in this room who believe in evolution. 
There are people in this room who do not believe in evolution. There are people whose relatives, there are people whose relatives fought against each other in the wars of history, sitting in the same room right now. And here we are, not just under the same roof, but under the same identity as kingdom kids. Church, that is God's glory and redemption reflected in kingdom family. That strangers and foreigners and enemies who would not otherwise breathe the same air are not only in the same room, they are breaking bread together. They are mourning one another's sorrows and celebrating one another's joys. By doing so, we testify to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in Christ, enemies are made closer than friends. That in Christ, a slave can break bread with his master. That in Christ, a liberal can weep with a conservative. That in Christ, people with different skin colors and ethnic backgrounds and different socioeconomic classes can sing praise to the same God. It is through Christ in us, the collective us, that the image of God is reflected in the world. It is in Christ that the family plan that God gave to Adam and Eve would be fulfilled in the earth. That's what it means to be fruitful and multiply as a kingdom family. It's to advance the glory and the greatness of God in the earth simply by being together. This kingdom family thing, though, it's not about what we do. The work's already been done. The work's already been finished. This kingdom family thing is not even necessarily about who we are. Our identity as kingdom kids has already been signed, sealed, and delivered. Kingdom family is about who we belong to and what he has done for us. To remind us of that this morning, I want to read a passage that I believe might be the best picture in all of Scripture about what God the Father has done for his kingdom kids. I'm going to invite Dom to come up. The words we're about to read are Jesus' most famous words, I would say. This is one of Jesus' most well-known stories. Many of us have heard it hundreds of times. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And the danger with something that we've read a lot or are very familiar with is that it becomes diluted. We lose the, the picture of it when we hear it over and over again. But this morning, as we read these words, I want us to, to put our kingdom family glasses on. I want us to see the Father's heart for his kids and for his household. This is Luke chapter 15. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. That's a bold statement, right? So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money in wild living. 
About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please, please take me on as a hired servant. And so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion, He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. I think it's funny to note that, like, the son doesn't even get to his plan yet. But the father says to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has not returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. I love that. The party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of his servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out, just like he did to the younger brother, and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me, and everything that I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This right here, it's the heart of God for his family. And there's two types of people that this passage confronts, and I want to address both of them this morning. Because some of us in this room are like the older brother in the story, or like the relig- religious Jews in ancient Israel. We've allowed ourselves to become entitled, calloused, closed off, narrow-minded, bitter, even judgmental of others. We've lost touch with the Father's heart for his house because we've tried to make it our own house. And in that process, we actually end up on the outside looking in, just like the older brother. And the Father would say to us this morning, just like he said to his eldest, son, daughter, I love you, and everything I have is yours. But I want you to see my heart for this family. 
Don't get so wrapped up in your striving. Don't get so caught up in your vision for my house that you lose sight of my vision for my house. And then <clears throat> there's some of us in this room who are like the younger brother. You're like the Gentiles. You feel like a foreigner. You feel excluded from the family. You feel like you don't belong. You're standing outside of the Father's house with your head down, and you're thinking, there's no way. No way. No way would I ever be welcome in this house. My sin is too great. My shame is too great. My pain is too real. My fear is too crippling. My brokenness runs too deep. There's no way that I would be welcome in the Father's house. And if that's you, I want you to do something with me. I want you to close your eyes. And I just want you to picture for a second the Father running. He's sprinting towards you. And as he gets closer, you can see the tears of joy streaming down his face. And when he gets to you, he throws his arms around your neck and he lifts your head up so that you're face to face with him, eye to eye. And this is what the Father says to you. Son, daughter, you are not a foreigner to my kingdom family. You are not a stranger in my kingdom family. You are not excluded from my kingdom family. You are not insignificant in my kingdom family. In my family, you are not worthless. You are not hopeless. You are not a slave or a servant. You are my kingdom kid. And you are welcome in my house. And I've got good news for you, son. I've got good news for you, daughter. In my house, there is no shame. In my house, there is no fear. In my house, there is no bondage. There are no chains. Do you know what's in my house? In my house, there's a seat at my table. And I wrote your name on it. I wrote Brian's name on it. Bobby, there's a seat at my table, and I wrote your name on it. Darian, there's a seat at my table, and I wrote your name on it. Jack, there's a table, and I wrote your name on it. And that table has been there since the beginning. Every day that you were gone, every day that you thought you were outside, every day that you thought you were excluded, I set a place at the table for you waiting for the day that you would come home, waiting for this very moment right now. And the Father would say to you and to me and to us, come, child, let me show you where your seat is. Let me take you to the table. Father, would you 
lead us. Would you lead your children by the hand this morning to our seat at the table? Would you free us, Lord, from our striving, from trying to work our way into the house, Lord? You already unlocked the door. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, the door was unlocked to the Father's house. So, Lord, would you lead us by the hand into your house? And seat us at the table, a table that none of us in our own strength and our own virtue and our own morality belong to be at. Would you sit us down at the table with you? A few weeks ago, at one of our prayer gatherings, uh, a person in our church saw a vision. And sometimes this is how the Lord speaks to the church. He speaks to the people, through the people. During our, our gathering, this person had a, had a vision of a scene that was like <clears throat> the movie Hook with Robin Williams. Remember that one? The Lost Boys. This vision was of a bunch of kids sitting around a, a long table, and they were playing and laughing and having fun with each other. And then all of a sudden, a big old food fight breaks out. Just a few days ago, somebody told us about the first event that happened in this building after it was acquired by reality. Before a prayer gathering happened, before a service happened, before anything happened, the youth group from Reality Carpinteria, they decided to throw a theme party right here where the sanctuary is now. Any guesses as to what the theme was? It was Hook Night. This room was full of a bunch of laughing kids sitting at a long banqueting table. And guess what? There was even a food fight. Church, that's what kingdom family looks like. All of us. Rapscallions and hooligans sitting around a table that apart from Christ we do not belong at. A table that we've been invited to by the grace and love of a perfect father. The invitation for us all, whether we're bitter, broken, entitled, or ashamed, is to sit at the Father's table and enjoy His presence. That is kingdom family. So this morning, we're going to respond not by doing a lot of stuff, not by gathering the troops and going out and saying, we're going to be the family of God. Because that's not the picture that Paul is painting for us. We're going to be family today. We're going to rest together in the finished work of Jesus. There's a few ways that we can do that this morning. We have these carpets up here. If you just need to be still, have some space before the Lord, come and kneel on the carpets. 
there are people to the right and the left who would love to pray for you. If you're struggling with your sense of belonging, I would say they, they don't even necessarily just want to pray for you. They want to encourage you and tell you that you belong in this family. When Jesus told his disciples to remember him before he was betrayed, he did that around a table. This wasn't a going away party for Jesus. What Jesus was doing was he was modeling what family should look like. Jesus gathered his disciples around a table and he took bread and he broke it and he passed it around. He said, this is my body which has been broken for you. Every time you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and he passed it around. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Every time you drink, do this in remembrance of me. So come today. Take communion. Remember the table that brings us all together. Remember what brought us all to the family table. And together, church, as we respond, let's rest in the finished work of Christ and the presence of a father who sits at the head of the table with a smile on his face. Amen.